please wear your headphones to hear this in 3D. And if you haven't listened to Jewels of the Maharajas, you may want to listen to that first. This is Lahore Fort in Pakistan. Our producer Iman went there in January. So present fort 455 years old, which was built by Akbar the Great, the third Mughal king, 1566. Three big period: Mughal, Sikh, British. My favorite was the women's quarters. It was all haram, queen's palace, washroom, makeup room. This was the terrace for the dancing girls. Is a waterfall for the pounded. They use hydraulic system with that, and that is no luck. A bungla cost no luck. 0.9 million in 1632. Look at this one. It's all inlaid of the stones, lapis, agate, jade, emerald, mm-hmm. petra dura. It is Italian art in the marble inlaid of the stones. Priceless gems. How rich Lahore was just centuries ago. Let's go back 220 years. to 1799 a young warrior is waiting outside the lahore fort to attack the skies will unleash the monsoon at any moment this isn't the right time for a military invasion still the sikh warrior ranjit singh waits outside lahore with his men in the smothering heat he must attack before these plains turn to mud Ranjit is just 19. He's short and blind in one eye from smallpox. His face is pockmarked. Some say he's the ugliest man in all of Punjab. Lahore is unusually quiet. It's the last day in the Muslim holy month of Muharram. By the time religious ceremonies are over, the people are tired. Ranjit's men blow up the Lahore gates and Ranjit rides in. He issues a proclamation to the people. I come in peace. I will not loot and if my men loot, I will punish them with death. This is the beginning of the Sikh empire in Punjab, the land of five rivers. At the height of his power, Maharaja Ranjit will command a vast empire from the Khyber Pass near the border of Afghanistan to the Thar Desert in northwest India. He'll be the doorstop to the East India Company, a British military corporation that is slowly expanding like a tumor across India, purpose-built to loot the riches of South Asia. But to really cement his rule to show he's no passing king but a ruler who can set up a dynasty to rival the Mughals he needs the Kohinoor which is with the Afghans and it can only be gotten by sword or bestowed by the grace of a king you're listening to scrolls and leaves a podcast featuring stories from the margins i'm gayatri vaidyanathan and i'm mary rose abraham We're in season 1, Trade Winds, set in the Indian Ocean world. In the last episode, Jewels of the Maharajas, we left you after the demise of the Emperor of Afghanistan, Ahmed Shah Durrani. In this episode, we'll continue 30 years after his death. His grandsons are fighting for the throne, 
and they have the Kohinoor, for now. The sources for this episode are listed on our website, scrollsandleaves.com. It's based on research by Anita Anand, William Dalrymple, Mohammed Sheikh, and others. And one note about the events and dates in this and the previous episode. They were hard. Did Ranjit Singh attack Lahore when he was 18 or 19, for example? Is the Kohinoor 105 carats or 102? And was it 191 or 186 carats before that? Sources give multiple answers, so we had to make some educated choices. Also, would you be interested in supporting this podcast? There aren't many like us in India with good reason. It's quite expensive to put out a sound-rich production. We operate on a shoestring, and your support would help ensure we can pay ourselves a decent wage. And supporters can get bonus content and perks. If you go to scrollsandleaves.com and on the top bar there is a donate tab, you can click on it to find out more. It is said the Kohinoor will harm the men who wear it. The diamond's current owners, the British royals, certainly seem to believe in this curse as only women wear the diamond. But is there really a deadly curse? Or is this a rumor that's meant to justify the British appropriation of the diamond? Well, here's an even more basic question. Should Britain give the diamond back? And to whom? A lot of people have owned it, the Persians, the Afghans, the Pakistanis, and of course the Indians. Not that the Brits are offering, mind you. Here's the comedian John Oliver. The British government is refusing to give that diamond up for reasons that former Deputy Prime Minister Nick Clegg explained last year. There is no doubt in in our mind that the diamond was relocated to this country under legal conditions, which are not in any doubt. But there is, I think, clarity in the sincerity with which the Queen holds the crown jewels, all of them, in trust on behalf of the nation, has done for many generations, and future monarchs will continue to do so. Okay, okay, that's, that, that's an intricate legal argument, so let me see if I can break it down for you. What he's basically saying is, I understand that you want the diamond, but the thing is, we have the diamond, <laughs> you don't, and we're going to keep having it forever. So in summary, finders keepers, go f*** yourself, cheerio. <laughs> so it sure looks like Britain will keep it, and in case you're thinking, Okay, at least they're upfront about the moral conundrum. <laughs> the ethical quandary. The post-colonial hangover headache of, you know, keeping this diamond. Let us set the record straight. I'm going on the website of the historic royal palaces, which displays the diamond in the Tower of London. Here is what it says about the exhibit. And I'm just going to read this. The history of the Kohinoor is steeped in myth and anecdote. Discovered in 15th century India, It was passed from ill-fated male hand to hand until it earned a reputation of bringing bad luck to men. It was presented to Queen Victoria in 1849, and it now adorns the front of Queen Elizabeth, the Queen Mother's crown. There's very little about um, the conquest and very little about colonization in terms of what the diamond represents. This is Gurinder Singh Man, a Sikh historian and head of the Sikh Museum Initiative in Leicester, England. He works with museums in the UK to restore historical context to colonial artifacts. And he says stories behind jewels and artifacts matter. They can help that little Indian kid in South Hall learn her roots. These objects are not just for them, but also what they mean to us. Not just Sikhs, but just the wider Indian diaspora here in the UK. In this episode, 
you'll hear what the Kohinoor's label should say, who the British took the diamond from and how, and once they had it, how they used the rhetoric of scientific progress to reshape the gem. And you can decide if it has a powerful and ancient curse. This is episode three, The Curse of the Kohinoor. Chapter One, A Fair King. When I was growing up, um, the stories of the Sikhs was told to me by my father. Uh, when we used to go to the Gurdwara, the Granthis or individual priests used to talk about these stories about this great ruler called Maharaja Ranjit Singh. There was like portraits of Maharaja Ranjit Singh as well. Him sitting in a Darbar or great court and everyone from around many parts of India used to go and visit him. Prior to that, growing up, I didn't realise that the Sikhs actually had an empire. Didn't realise that we actually had kings as well. Gurinder read up all he could about this great king. Maharaja Ranjit Singh was actually labelled as the Lion of Punjab. And this cuts into the heart of Sikh history in the 18th century. Imagine we're at Lahore Fort, about five years after Ranjit Singh occupied the city. He's been crowned Maharaja of this magnificent kingdom, he wakes up early and exercises outdoors. Then he dresses in plain white muslin kurta pajamas, prays, and then speaks to his advisors and intelligence officers. And then he heads to the Lahore Darbar, the court, where he sits, usually on the floor or a low chair. Though he does have a golden throne for special occasions, Gurinder has seen it at the Victoria and Albert Museum in London. It was labelled as the chair of Maharaja Ranjit Singh. It was a fabulous chair with gold inlay. And it was something which did kind of transport you back to the time of a golden period of the Lahore Darbar or court. And just made me feel that um, our community was something special and was part of something really big, which prior to that was probably not exposed to us in such a rich way. A few advisors sit around Ranjit at the Darbar, and anyone can approach the king, even common folk, Hindus, Muslims, Sikhs, and they bring gifts of jewels, cash, horses, weapons, shawls. Suffice it to say, the people love this king who's fearless, direct, full of life and kind. They make up fables praising his wisdom that are still told in India today. To hear one fable about the Maharaja, please visit www.patreon.com slash scrollsandleaves. A decade after Ranjith occupies Lahore, around 1809, he hears his nemesis is in Kabul, Emperor Shah Shuja Omok of the Duranis. He has lost his throne, and he's roaming around with the precious Kohinoor, looking for refuge. The Kohinoor diamond was a prized possession of any ruler that Ranjit Singh wanted for himself. It was a symbolic conquest of the Durrani Empire, a group of people that the Sikhs had been fighting from, from the time of Ahmed Shah Abdali, who direct havoc on Hindustan. So Ranjit proposes a trade, refuge in exchange for the diamond. Shah Shuja finally accepts and settles in Lahore in 1813, but he doesn't hand over the diamond. Then one day in June, Ranjit arrives at Shah Shuja's palace, called Mubarak Haveli. It's in the walled city of Lahore, and he sits down. No one speaks for nearly an hour. Finally, 
Ranjit whispers to his attendant to ask for the diamond. Then Shah Shuja nods at his attendant to bring the Kohinoor to Ranjith. The attendant brings it wrapped in a scarlet velvet roll and sets it equidistant between the two kings. Ranjit's man unwraps it. The Kohinoor is there, set in gold. Ranjit looks at it quietly, takes it, and leaves without a word. He kept the diamond under lock and key at the fort, and most of his retinue never knew exactly where it was. It's kept under the treasury keeper's strict instructions. I think so. There's had to be some kind of sense that he felt that this diamond could be taken away from the Sikhs. It could be taken away from the Sikh empire. The Kohinoor becomes a symbol of sovereignty of the Punjab. The Maharaja loves showing it off, especially to visitors from the East India Company, which has already annexed lands right up to the borders of the Sikh Empire. The boundary is the ancient river Sutlej. Even when the East India Company and the British came to see him, he would show off the diamond in all its glory, just to state that the Sikh Empire is not just a benevolent empire which embraces all communities and cultures, but also is a rich empire as designated by the Kohinoor diamond. Chapter 2. The Funeral of a King It's been 40 years since Ranjit was crowned Maharaja. It's 1839. He's lying on his bed in his opulent bedroom in the fort. He's surrounded by family and advisors. He's dying. So he's giving away money and jewels to various causes. He points and makes a noise. He seems to be saying that he wants the Kohinoor diamond donated to the temple of Jagannath in East India. His advisors are flummoxed. Is the king in his right mind? Give the most precious state jewel to a Hindu temple? One minister points at another minister. You do it. The other minister points at the crown prince Kharak Singh. Kharak says the treasurer has the diamond. The treasurer says he doesn't. It's in another far-away fort. Ranjit overhears the squabble and frowns. Is this confusion a premonition? His advisors don't donate the Kohinoor. And days later, Ranjit passes away. His body is surrounded by oil lamps. Attendants bathe him in perfumes, dress him in jewelry. He's placed on a magnificent gilded wooden platform, decorated in cloth of gold and silver. A Prussian court official named Henry Steinbeck describes the funeral. The musicians go first, playing their wild dirge, followed by their beloved Maharaja. Next, attendants carry four large mirrors, each reflect four of Ranjit's queens who've decided to join him on the funeral pyre. The queens are dressed in magnificent clothes and are carried on chairs strapped to the shoulders of attendants. They seem to be in a state of high excitement and climb the funeral pyre apparently eagerly. Behind the queens walk the female slaves of the Maharaja. They too plan to self-immolate, but they seem less enthusiastic. Once the humans are assembled, the pyre is covered by a canopy of Kashmiri shawls. Then, Ranjit's son Kharak Singh approaches with a lit torch. He says a short prayer 
and touches the fire to the pile. No one can hear the screams. Chapter 3 A Boy King After Ranjit's death, the Lahore Darbar goes to the dogs. Kadak Singh is murdered by poison within months, and the day after his funeral, his son's head is crushed. Two other sons of Ranjit are also murdered. All told, three Maharajas and one Maharani and a number of top court officials are killed over four years. So, there's only one legitimate heir of Maharaja Ranjit left. Five-year-old Duleep Singh, born to Ranjit and Maharani Jindan Kaur a year before Ranjit died. Jindan is one of Ranjit's many wives who didn't self-immolate on the pyre. Let's get to know Duleep through the jewels he owned. Here's Frederike Focht, curator of South Asia at the National Museum of Scotland. She first saw Duleep's jewelry in 2008, when she joined the museum. Among the treasures was a breathtaking gold bracelet, shaped into a makara, a legendary sea creature from Hinduism. So I took the bracelets out of the store, one after the other. I could feel how heavy they actually were. These two bracelets, they have makara heads, and they're very intricately, very finely shaped, these heads. They have very sharp teeth because their mouths are open and you can see the tongue, which is formed by a whetstone, so maybe a ruby, and other bits. So you, the more closely you look, the more details you can see. The different animals, they show you flowers. There are little birds at some end. I also discovered a little screw where you can actually unscrew one part of the bracelet so that you can put it on your arm. And the screws are set with emeralds while the eyes are also precious stones. And then I went further to research these items a bit more. So I wanted to know where they made particularly for him. And I found one painting that shows uh, Maharaja Wanjit Singh wearing Markara-headed bracelets. It's not clear if these are the same, but it helped me to make this link between the son and the father. He was very young when he had to live with decisions that were beyond his influence, basically. It's five years since Ranjit died, September 1843. Duleep has been crowned king the Kohinoor strapped to his chubby little arm. As he's just five, his mother, Rani Jindan Kaur, rules on his behalf as regent. So, not a great situation overall, but one person at least is thrilled with the way things are going. <laughs> the governor general of the East India Company. Punjab is one of the last autonomous Indian kingdoms resisting them. He writes to London, Everything is going on there as we should desire, if we looked forward to the ultimate position of the Punjab. What 
a crock of BS. The company has a treaty of friendship with the Sikh Empire. Okay, so? So they can't go to war without reason. It's like the U.S. suddenly going to war with Canada. But what if they could somehow get the Sikhs to flout the treaty? Wouldn't that be a good reason for war? Chapter 4. Plunder About two years later, in December 1845, the British army amasses on the banks of the Sutlej River at the border of the Sikh Empire. Rani Jindan, the regent, sees this as aggression, in the same way that a nation amassing troops at a national border today would be seen as aggression. She dispatches a cavalry. But what Jindan does not know is that the British have whispered into the ears of some of the most powerful and jealous men in her court and military, and turned them. The Punjab troops crossed the river. Immediately, the British declare the treaty has been violated. This is war. Six soldiers fight bravely. They are repeatedly betrayed by their own men in command. Within months, British troops march into Lahore. There are still pockets of fighting, but the capital's fallen. The leap is made to sign away control of Lahore to the East India Company. And a year later, in 1847, the company's representative decides the king should be separated from his mother. The leap is just nine. Soldiers drag Jindan out of the fort, kicking and screaming. She'll spend most of the rest of her life virtually imprisoned. In 1849, four years and two Anglo-Sikh wars later, the fierce warriors of Punjab fall quiet. The kingdom now belongs to the East India Company. Here's the East India Company's Governor General, the Earl of Dalhousie, in his military tent. He's busy writing letters to London. He needs to convince his superiors that this war was a profitable enterprise, he must seize the wealth of the Punjab, and he must ensure that the Sikhs never again rebel against their masters. There is a relation between Ranjit Singh, the Sikh empire, the stone, as symbols of Sikh power. And this had to have been removed so that it couldn't threaten the East India Company's power in the region any longer. What could be the best way to do this? Of course get a piece of paper signed by the child. On March 29, 1849, British officials convene the Lahore Darbar for the last time. Ten-year-old Dilip is sitting on his father's chair, the one that'll be taken and displayed at the Victoria and Albert Museum. The Brits give him a new legal document to sign. It was the last time that Dilip Singh was probably sitting on his throne and he signed the contract and agreed to it surrounded by his court and a lot of British people who were watching and witnessing this scene. I would think that he understood what was happening. And the document says the territory and all its property now belong to the company as reparation for war. And it reads, The gem called the Kuhinur, which was taken from Shah Suja Ul Mulk by Maharaja Ranjit Singh, shall be surrendered by the Maharaja of Lahore to the Queen of England. 
Dalhousie wants all the property of Lahore as booty, from kitchen utensils to the elephants to the jewels. He asks a trusted advisor named John Logan to inventory all of Lahore's wealth. Logan is a kind man. He feels conflicted by the task, and he knows the extraction will destroy the socioeconomic fabric of Punjab. Here's the stuff that got sold over nine auctions in Lahore, each with hundreds of objects. It's a tremendous list, long as the plunder. Bear with us. Livestock, dresses, pictures, gold, silver, brass, and copper vessels. Stores with the Maharaja's camping equipment, such as cashmere tents, carpets, curtains, magazines with guns and ammo, elephants and camels, carriages, gold and silver trappings, horses, mules, breeding mares, embroidered elephant jewels, which are large carpet-like coverings for the animal's back, the grain stored in the fort, distilled water, dried fruits, medicines, and all the jewels in the Lahore treasury or Toshakana, as seen by a friend of Lady Logan. I wish you could walk through that same Toshakana and see its wonders, the vast quantities of gold and silver, the jewels not to be valued, so many and so rich, the Kohinoor far beyond what I had imagined, and perhaps above all, the immense collection of magnificent cashmere shawls, rooms full of them, laid out on shelves and heaped up in bales. Fabrics and clothes, cashmere shawls, crystal and jasper cups and vases, plain and enameled silver drinking vessels and rose water sprinklers, perfume holders, a gold jewelry set with imitation diamonds and real emerald drops and valuable pearl necklaces silver gilt and enameled bangles, anklets, nose and toe rings, forehead ornaments and earrings, gold armlets set with diamonds and rubies, a holder for plumes worn in the turban, a gold elephant and horse trappings, silver tent poles and large tents, firearms and swords, and miscellaneous items such as a jeweled looking glass, miniatures of Ranjit Singh, and a small assortment of elegant English jewellery. Even the swords and the kalki or plume of Guru Gobind Singh, the last guru of the Sikhs, a priceless religious artifact that holds deep meaning for the Sikhs that has since vanished from sight. All told, the auctions at the treasury net 1.7 million rupees for the East India Company. That's 17 million pounds in today's terms. And that's not counting the Kohinoor, which was valued back then at two million pounds, or the other property of Lahore. As for the Kohinoor, Dalhousie was adamant that it was given to the Queen as her spoil of war because he considered it an ultimate symbol of Sikh power. The British press is thrilled the Kohinoor's coming to London and they print breathless stories about this exotic eastern diamond and one rumour. They say the Kohinoor is cursed. So the curse actually refers to the fact that the diamonds should always be in the hands of a woman. This is due to this idea that empires would fall and that it would bring ill fortune to male individuals who actually held the diamond. Dalhousie is livid about this rumour. His gift to the Queen is being mocked. But then the tabloids do him one better. They say the curse only affects oriental male despots. It won't affect the queen. 
the British probably thought, okay, to actually talk about a curse being put on the Kuhinur, that um, it gives impetus to the fact that now that the British have taken the, the diamond, it's in the hands of a woman, it's in the hands of Queen Victoria. So the British used that sentiment to state that it needs to be in a, in a ruler which is a woman. In December 1849, Dalhousie goes to the treasury, Logan's at the Toshakana. Dalhousie asks him for the Kohinoor. He takes it and gets a signed receipt. He puts it in a pouch, which his wife then stitches into his clothes. Then he leaves Punjab in great haste and secrecy. No one knows what he's carrying with him. It's a two-month-long, very tense journey to Bombay. And there, in April, the Kohinoor boards the HMS Medea and leaves for London. As for that other symbol of the Sikh Empire, young Maharaja Dulip Singh, weeks after the final Lahore Darbar, Dalhousie assigns him a new guardian, John Logan, the same Logan who was cleaning out the Lahore treasury. Logan feels for this boy who's had so much taken from him at such a young age. According to his own letters, Logan wrote to his wife. He was very fond of Dulip Singh. He went on little horse riding trips with him, Dulip Singh on his pony and Logan on his horse. He also uh, uh, wanted to celebrate his 11th birthday and had a little party where guests were invited and Dulip Singh's cousin came. So this was the private life he had with him. On the other hand, he was also aware that this was a difficult task because Dulip Singh was not his son, so he was still the Maharaja. And he was a servant of the British government in India. So he always lived between these two sides in his mind and probably in his heart. Dulip is exiled with the Logins to Fatagar Hill Fort in present-day Uttar Pradesh. That's far away from Punjab. He's educated in the Western system, and the Logans effectively become his parents. And when he's 14, he asks to be baptized. Soon after, Dulip and his guardians move to England. While the six mourn the loss of their boy king a second time, Dalhousie is pleased and writes to a friend, politically, we could desire nothing better for it destroys his possible influence forever. Chapter 5. Reshaped Welcome one and all to the 1851 Great Exhibition of the Works of Industry of All Nations, the greatest show on earth. It'll showcase the best of industry, culture, and beauty from across the empire, and the main attraction is the Kohinoor. Excitement is at fever pitch as people throng to see this cursed and controversial jewel. Just this morning, the Times had an op-ed questioning how Victoria had acquired the diamond. Was it legal? Was it given to her as a tribute? But as the day goes on, it becomes clear. The Kohinoor is not living up to its reputation. It's the size of a walnut. To ordinary eyes, it is nothing more than an egg-shaped lump of glass. Disappointed the public in no ordinary degree. Victoria's partner, Prince Albert, who organized the great exhibition, 
is disappointed. You see, tastes differ. People in the West prefer their diamonds brilliant, cut into a cone that refracts a lot of light. But a lot of the raw material is also lost in the cutting. This is called the brilliant cut. It's how most diamonds are shaped today. But in Asia back then, people preferred their diamonds almost raw and large. The Kohinoor is a Mughal cut, a shaping that retains the size of the gem while enhancing its brilliance. The Kohinoor is domed like a mountain and has a flat base. It has 169 facets and weighs 191 carats. But this Mughal cut means the diamond isn't as brilliant as it could be. Albert consults British scientists. Sir David Brewster, a well-known physicist, pronounces the Kohinoor in its present form useless. It has to be recut, made symmetrical. Other scientists, Neville Story Maskeline, a geologist at the British Museum, and crystallographers James Tennant and Walter Mitchell also weigh in. They form a Kohinoor scientific committee of sorts, charged with transforming the oriental diamond into a rational and modern ornament. The stone didn't come as just the stone, but it was set into a bazu band, so an armlet that you would wear around your upper arm, partly as not talisman, but it had a kind of talismanic value to it. However, it's taken out of this setting and then it's transformed into something that is acceptable to a Western taste. Despite all the talk of British science, Albert eventually hires diamond cutters from Amsterdam to work on the jewel. In 1852, for 38 days, 12 hours a day, they shape it painstakingly. The whole affair is a spectacle, as the Kohinoor transforms into a symbol of British superiority, overseen by scientists. At the end, the diamond emerges, more sparkling certainly, but a mountain no more. It's not the monster diamond of the Vijayanagara Empire, of the Mughals, Nadir Shah, the Durranis, the Sikh Empire, those men who took by sword and not by stealth. The Kohinoor is now a middling 102 carats, still a jewel of inferior water, not very clear. Its size has reduced by 43%. Queen Victoria is still dogged by questions about how she acquired the diamond. We're in 1854. Dulip Singh is a 15-year-old boy, and like the diamond, he too has been recut. Dilip Singh gets educated, so he is shaped and he is supposed to become a British gentleman and aristocrat, so his pension should allow him to live like that. He's a great favorite at the court, and one day a little drama involving him plays out at Buckingham Palace. This account is based on a journal maintained by Lady Logan, as written up by a couple of historians. Victoria has commissioned a painting of Dulip. He's posing, wearing silk pajamas, a heavy gold embroidered shirt and jewellery. He has on embroidered slippers curled at the toes. On his head, a turban of emeralds. At his throat, a miniature of Victoria. Victoria watches and beckons to Lady Login to ask her if Tulip ever mentions the Kohinoor. Does he seem to regret it? 
and would he like to see it again she asks lady login is apprehensive there are few things that rankle him as much as the kohinoor but she takes dulip aside and asks him yes indeed i would he says i was but a child an infant when forced to surrender it by treaty but now that i'm a man i should like to have it in my power to place it myself in her hand before the next sitting a group of beef eaters from the tower of london appear with a box holding the diamond dulip takes the gem in his hand victoria asks him has it improved does he recognize it again he walks over to the window to examine it he turns it to watch the light reflect off the facets his face fills with suppressed emotion this diamond doesn't look like the stone that he wore when he was king the one that was taken from him there is great tension in the room as victoria and others watch him finally dulip tears his eyes off the jewel he slowly turns back hands it to victoria and says it is to me ma'am the greatest pleasure thus to have the opportunity as a loyal subject of myself tendering to my sovereign the kohinoor so dulip gives it to her Well, of a sort. I mean, what else could Dilip do? Run away with it? But more than 25 years later, in the 1880s, Dilip does demand it back. He realizes the injustices in his life. Everything was taken from him when he was a child. He reconverts to Sikhism and tries to return to India to raise an army and get back his throne. Oh, that sounds promising. Nope. He's arrested. and he eventually dies alone and bankrupt in a Paris hotel room. Britain maintains today that the Kohinoor was a gift from the Maharaja to the Queen. They often cite that scene at the Buckingham Palace or the 1849 treaty. And most histories of the diamond in western media are whitewashed and they play up the curse. For example, here's the March issue of the fashion magazine Vogue, the French edition. An article on the crown jewels says about the Kohinoor, the stone has the reputation of being cursed after the assassination of four kings who possessed it, gifted to Queen Victoria by the Sultan of the Ottoman Empire in 1856. It is cut Wait, what? The Sultan of the Ottoman Empire? Yeah, not only are they reducing these historical jewels to exotic eastern baubles, they're getting the little bit of history they have blatantly wrong. For Britain, the Kohinoor remains an uncomfortable possession, a symbol of imperialism and colonization, a thorn in its civilized behind. Every year, someone or the other keeps suing them to get the jewel back. <laughs> Doesn't this seem like the effect of a black curse? But as we've already alluded, the curse of the Kohinoor is probably nothing but hogwash. played up to justify the colonial transfer of the jewel. Sure, the men who owned it seem to have experienced terrible misfortune. Dilip, Ranjit Singh's dreams of a Sikh dynasty, all the Durrani rulers, Nader Shah, the Mughals, the Vijayanagara Empire too ended. But then all empires end, don't they? And even kings must die, often at the sword point as they lived. 
Thanks for listening. I'm Gayathri Vaidhanathan. And I'm Mary Rose Abraham. Next time on Scrolls and Leaves. We'll tell you about a 19th century pandemic that changed the world and redefined how we travel forever. Our sound designer is... Nikhil Nagaraj. The storytellers are... Sumit Kumar. And... Alexa Stanga. This episode was produced by Gayathri and Mary Rose with assistance from... Iman Iftikhar. Sasha Samina. Alexa Stanga. You were listening to Scrolls and Leaves in collaboration with the archives at the National Center for Biological Sciences. Our thanks to Gurinder Singh Mann and Frederica Focht. Thanks to our episode supporter, the Yale Mellon Sawyer Seminar, the Order of Multitudes, Atlas Encyclopedia Museum, and Anjana Badrinarainen of NCBS. For more information and past episodes, visit scrollsandleaves.com or you can follow us on Twitter at scrollsleaves or on Instagram at scrollsandleaves or like us on Facebook and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. See you next time.